0: dilate my heart, enlarge my heart, give me greater capacity to love you, to seek after you, to obey you. Hello, friends, and welcome. Thanks so much for listening. In my last podcast, I talked about the sweetness of devotion. And in the podcast before that, I talked about how God is easy to to please. And there's one person I've read more than any other who talks about the sweetness of devotion, and that's Teresa of Avila. And she was a Spanish nun uh, who lived from 1515 to 1582. And in her book, The Interior Castle, there are 27 different times that she uses the word sweet or sweetness. And this book is divided up into Um, sections where she talks about the first mansion, the second mansion, the third mansion, and she's talking about these different kind of levels of surrender where we're opening ourselves up and we're allowing the Lord to fill us up even more and more and more, kind of like Paul talks about being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But let me just read a little bit from, this is from the fourth mansions chapter two, and she writes, while I am now writing these words, I am thinking of the above-mentioned verse, Thou hast dilated my heart. Dilatasti cor meum." He says, He has dilated the heart. It does not seem to me, as I said, that it is a thing which takes its rise from the heart, but from some other more interior part as a profound deep. I think it must be the center of the soul, as afterwards understood And as I shall explain more in detail, for I discover indeed such wonderful secrets within us, as often to astonish me, but how many more are. O my Lord and my God, how wonderful is thy greatness! Yet here we live, like so many silly swains, imagining we have attained some knowledge of thee, and yet it is indeed as nothing, for even in ourselves there are great secrets which we do not understand. I say as nothing when compared with the treasures found in thee. Though even from thy works we discover very sublime greatnesses respecting thee. Returning then to this verse, I think that that which will suit my purpose best is this dilation. When this heavenly water begins to rise from the source I spoke of in the inmost recesses of the soul, our whole interior seems to be enlarging and dilating and producing certain delights which cannot be expressed. Neither can the soul understand what this is which is here given to her. A certain fragrance is diffused, as if, if I may say so, some odoriferous perfumes were cast into a brassier without any light being seen or the place whence the odor comes. But the heat and delicious scent pass through the soul, and very frequently, as I have said, the body shares in this delight." See that you properly understand me, for neither is any heat felt nor smell perceived, since it is something more subtle than these. I speak thus to make you understand me. And so Teresa, St. Teresa of Avila, she's talking about these delights, the sweetness of being completely surrendered to God and being devoted to Him. And she uses a phrase here, the dilation of the heart. You know, when we think about when you go to get an eye exam and they dilate your eyes and they make that part of your eye, the pupil of your eye, open as wide as possible. And here she's saying, I want my heart to be dilated. I want my heart to open wide to the Lord. And she's referring to the Latin scripture, and I don't know if her writings were originally in Latin or Spanish, but they were then translated into English, and so this arrives to us as this idea of the dilated heart. But we read it in English in Psalm 119, verse 32, as, You enlarge my heart. The psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And I think this is a great prayer for us to make our own. Lord, dilate my heart, enlarge my heart. Give me greater capacity to love you, to seek after you, to obey you. There's a St. Augustine quote that says, God provides the wind, man must raise the sail. So there's a tension in our spiritual lives, in spiritual formation of what part does God do and what part do we do? And depending on your religious tradition and background, some groups go down a path of you're justified by grace through faith, but you're sanctified by works. And even if they don't say that outright, that's kind of the ethos of the group, that before you got saved, um, there was nothing you could do to be saved. You're saved only by grace, but now that you are saved, it's really up to you to be a good person and to behave the right way. But the Bible actually teaches that we're justified by faith and we're sanctified by faith. In Acts 26, verse 18, it says, uh, Paul is retelling his story when Jesus calls him, and he says, I'm sending you to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's Jesus speaking, and he says that we're sanctified by faith in him in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 it says Jesus Christ is to us wisdom righteousness sanctification and redemption in Romans 1:17 in the international readers version it reads like this the good news shows God's power to make people right with himself God's power to be made right with him is given to the person who has faith it happens by faith from beginning to end it is written the one who is right with God will live by faith. So our whole relationship with God, start to finish, is by faith. It's the grace of God by faith. It's God working in us. Like Philippians 2.13 says, It's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, God is at work in us, and He's drawing us into the divine life. He's allowing us to be partakers of the divine nature. He's drawing us into the life of the Godhead to participate with God in this eternal, everlasting, abundant life. So, this is a work of God, and yet there are things that we know we can do to cooperate with God's Work, And that's what this St. Augustine quote is getting at, that God provides the wind, man must raise the sail. The Apostle Paul confirms this in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, I warned you as I warned before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's talking about walking according to the flesh, that if you walk according to the flesh, you won't inherit the fullness of what. God has for you. Now, you can be a born-again Christian and still walk in the flesh. And so, Paul is exhorting the Christians in Galatia, don't live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you're going to miss out on the inheritance that God wants to give you. And so, by living according to the Spirit, We inherit everything that God has for us. If we live by the Spirit, we keep in step with the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one setting the the direction and the pace of our lives. We're going where He's leading, and we're going at the speed that the Spirit is walking. We're staying in step with the Holy Spirit. And this prayer in Psalm 119.32 that uh, Teresa of Avila refers to for our hearts to be dilated, that God would enlarge our hearts for him, is one of the things that God has made available to us that allows us to raise the sail, where we open up our hearts to God and we say, God, enlarge my heart. Give me a greater capacity to love you and to run after you. I'd like to read a selection from Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, that describes this dynamic in the context of the gospel. That Jesus preached the gospel is that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel that Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1. And so let me read this from Dallas Willard, uh, this metaphor of the coming of the kingdom, and how we raise the sail, as St. Augustine said, and God provides the wind. But he writes, As a child, I lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had more of that than we could use. But in my senior year of high school, the REA, Rural Electrification Administration, extended its lines into the area where we lived, and electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. You may think the comparison rather crude, and in some respects it is, but it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of the heavens if we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent for electricity is at hand, repent or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, their scrubbers and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near them, where by making relatively simple arrangements, they could utilize it. Strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. Others could not afford it, or so they thought. In these images, something absolutely crucial to Jesus' message is emphasized. There is no suggestion that electricity hasn't happened yet, but is about to happen or is about to be there, possibly if someone welcomes it or lets it come. Rather, they have now become available. And similarly, the kingdom of God is also right beside us. In a different book, The Great Omission, Dallas Willard writes, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning So God's grace is never earned. There's nothing we can ever do to merit God's power at work in our lives. But God's grace coming into our lives empowers us to pursue Him. In Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the NIV says, "...for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age." while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So, our spiritual activities do not in and of themselves make us holy. It's Christ's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection that justifies us before God. Romans chapter 10, nine and 10, most people are very familiar with it if you've been in the church long. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So it's trusting in the work of Jesus that saves us. Our spiritual disciplines are just tools that position us to enjoy the grace that God has so lavishly given to us. We're just raising the sail. Spiritual disciplines are just a way to raise the sail to catch the wind of God. My professor, uh, Dr. Dan Call, he says, the spirit-formed life is a cooperative venture between the follower of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, it says, after this Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And that, to me, is a remarkable scripture, because Jesus wouldn't go where the people didn't want him to be. He went where he was welcomed. And so, when we open our hearts, when we ask God to dilate our hearts, to enlarge our hearts, we make a a place where God is welcome. We create an environment where God is welcome. It doesn't mean we're earning anything from God we're positioning ourselves to receive the grace that he will willingly give to every person who calls on the name of Jesus. We see this in the life of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. It talks about Cornelius was a centurion, and he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, Cornelius was a sinner who Apart from Jesus, could never be saved. So he did not deserve God's grace, just like none of us deserve God's grace. But he positioned himself to be the first Gentile recipient of the gospel message. If Cornelius, there were probably lots of other centurions in Israel at that time, and if he had been out, uh, you know, racing his horses, carousing being busy about his military duties, completely consumed in that life, he may have missed out on what God wanted to do in his life. And yet, because he was giving his attention, his time to seeking God, God sent an angel to visit him. Now, of course, I believe that it was the work of the Holy Spirit that was even causing him to seek God in the first place because of what I read in Philippians 2.13, that it's God who's at work, that even when we desire God, that that in itself is a work of God drawing us toward Him. So we don't get to see where the line of God's sovereign drawing and the line of our sovereign response ends and begins. We We don't really get to know that line. I talked about that in my podcast on prayer, on prayer and the sovereignty of God. That the line where our free will and God's sovereignty meet is like a rooftop way over our heads. And yet the wisest thing we can do, the exhortation of the scripture, is to get wisdom, is to seek God with everything that we have. Going back to the prayer that Teresa of Avila used out of Psalm 119, when she says, enlarge my heart. Beginning in verse 33, it starts this series of prayers where the psalmist says, teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes. Give me understanding. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Confirm to your servant your promise. Turn away the reproach that I dread. And so we can use these things. We can use these prayers that God has given to us, even though these are old covenant prayers, As new covenant believers, how much more should we rejoice in our access to the throne room of God that we can come boldly before God, confident that we have access to Him through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we can pray, teach me, O Lord, Your ways, give me understanding, lead me in the path of Your commands, incline my heart that we surrender our heart to Jesus, to reign over our heart. And we say, incline my heart to your testimonies. Enlarge my heart so that I can go after you even more. In Ephesians 117, Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The point is not to get on a hamster wheel of religion where everything we do is never enough and we're always striving and trying to do more and to be more so that we become acceptable to God. No, the point is to realize God has accepted us completely and he has made us the righteousness of Christ. You're not going to get more righteous by doing spiritual disciplines. You're not going to become more acceptable to God by living holy, but you are going to enjoy God more. Spiritual disciplines are for our benefit. Going to church doesn't do anything for God being assembled with other believers is for our benefit. Studying the Bible does not gain you anything with God. Studying the Bible so that you can learn how the kingdom of God works and you can live in the fullness of what Jesus Christ died for you to inherit. Paul expresses this in Philippians 3.16. In the NIV it says, "...only let us live up to what we have already attained." God has already given us the fullness of the kingdom. We're not working to try and earn anything additional from God. The reason to raise the sail, the reason to devote ourselves to the Lord is for the sweetness of knowing Him, for the joy of being in communion with Him. May God bless you. May you open your heart wide to this wonderful, good God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing and he says, Corinthians, our heart is open wide to you. I ask that you widen your hearts also to us. God's heart has been open wide to us. Let us open wide our hearts to him. God bless you. Thanks for listening.